You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. We all believe we've run into the burning building. But until we feel that heat, we can never know. You do. You chose to die instead of giving up your colleagues. test you passed not everybody does welcome to the afterlife to do what i do i need some idea of the threat we face as i understand it we're trying to prevent world war three nuclear holocaust no Something worse. All I have for you is a word. Tell it. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. You have to start looking at the world in a new way. Try to understand it. Feel it. It'll happen here. Hasn't happened yet. Hey everybody and welcome to Geekfest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone and today we have two separate topics we're going to talk about. First up, we have the film Tenant, a big, big studio production directed by Christopher Nolan. This is a very eagerly awaited film that I finally had a chance to watch. I'm going to give you my insight on what my, let's call it, first impressions are of this film. I ended up watching it at home. Original plans were to see it in the theater, but let's dig a little deeper into this one and afterwards we're going to talk about the kobayashi maru the famous star trek related simulation that appeared on a number of its films and it's referenced on other materials and it's even inspired an eagle moss ship of the infamous simulation ship so let's get started with tenet What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? 
Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That's spawn of Satan! <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. Well, I finally had a chance to watch Tenet. This is a movie that I've been waiting for for quite a bit. Now, granted, with Christopher Nolan, the, you know, there is usually so much secrecy around the making of his whatever latest film happens to be that I can't tell you that I've been tracking this movie for like years and, you know, following up on the production because he's pretty quiet about it. He's It's pretty, you know, under the radar when he's making these films, but... At a certain point, you know, word started to spread that this was going to be a little different. This might actually be tipping going into Inception territory. With his last two films, Interstellar and Dunkirk, you know, him going in different directions, this was kind of like a return to that world almost. And, you know, both my son and I were looking forward to this one really well. And when it was getting close to that time, you know... COVID had already started, and it was very difficult to go see it in the theater by the time, you know, we everybody was hoping that by the time, you know, this thing comes out, we will have wrapped up this whole COVID thing, but haha, guess what? Not even close. The film opened in some theaters. You were able to go see it in some theaters. Not around here. Here, where I live, my theaters closed down again around that time, my local theaters. I mean, I could have driven... I don't know, maybe an hour away, go to Orlando or something like that. But you know what? Nah, screw it. Kept it safe, kept it local. And then, yes, I heard that they were going to eventually come to DVD, home video. uh, And that is exactly what I'm reviewing right now. I have a 4K copy of Tenet. I knew I wanted to go all out on this in terms of, since I now have a 4K television, I might as well watch a movie like this. Because it is Christopher Nolan, because I know how much he is all about visuals, that if you wanted to spend that couple of extra bucks, you might as well do it, you know, on a movie like this one. I will not automatically do that on most movies I buy now. I know it's kind of weird because in the past, I remember when I was going high def, I started buying Blu-rays, you know, in advance. And then when I knew I was going to go 4K, I started buying 4Ks in advance. But I don't know exactly if I'm going to do that all the time. First of all, it's a little harder to find the 4K version of certain movies. And there are a little more expensive. You are going to pay maybe an extra three or four bucks or five bucks maybe. I'm even more sometimes just because it's a 4K version. So I'm in this transitional period right now. I have two TVs. One is a regular HD set and the other one is a 4K set. So it fluctuates between the two. But anyway, back to this movie. There was some buzz before the movie came out or as the movie was kind of out already, but most people didn't have access to it, that there were a couple of possible issues with the movie. One issue being that it was very complicated. It was a little convoluted in trying to understand what exactly is happening. The other issue had to do with the sound, the audio mix. So those are two things that I kept in the back of my mind while I watched this film. And I tell you the truth, I had a really strange reaction to this movie because 
I like to think of myself as somebody who is very tolerant and very willing to, you know, kind of like open up your mind and try to let a movie take you in certain places and guide you in certain instances, and especially with some of Christopher Nolan's films, especially the earlier ones, and every now and then, yeah, even a movie like Inception, you're taking into a world that usually doesn't make sense until you're either halfway through it or right at the end, where everything kind of unlocks itself and starts to make sense once you decipher what exactly is happening. I think the best example of this is Inception. Inception deals with very high concept themes, you know, scientific themes, science fiction themes, if you will. But there is a method to the madness. There is a formula of how things are working. And if you can think conceptually and and you kind of open up your mind to the possibilities of, well, this is how it would work. You know, boom, boom, boom. There's the rules and you can follow them and it makes sense. And for that particular film, I'd like to think it is a very accessible film to a general audience. Yes, you're going to lose a few along the way. If you're used to very simple films, films that are either like, let's say, simple rom-coms or stuff like that. If that's all you watch is rom-coms, maybe Inception is a little out there for you. I get that. But Inception as a whole, I think part of its success was that it was accessible to everybody and the majority of the people who watched it got it. Hence, it's great reviews and popularity and so forth and so forth. Now, I understand this film is also in the news because of the fact that there are so many issues uh, with the film not being able to be shown in all theaters. You know, I'm sure that upsets the director very much. It upsets the, the studio just as much because they're losing money left and right. And lately, because of the fact that a lot of these studios are funneling their films now, apparently, to streaming services to be able to make some money rather than to make very little money, is also upsetting directors. Christopher Nolan being a specific one, a very specific one, who is very upset about that. The chances of people watching it, you could say, could get diminished. But at the same time, you could say, well, wait a minute. If it's in a streaming service, that means more people are going to watch it. Now, I don't know if people's reaction will differ if you're watching it in a movie theater, if you're watching it at home. Granted, I wanted to see this movie in a movie theater. And there are certain films that, yeah, I would you know, prefer to see it in a movie theater and then watch. I mean, some movies I don't mind watching just on DVD or, you know, streaming them or whatever. But movies like this, you know, like uh, superhero films, big sci-fi films, even if it's a big horror film, I would rather see it in a movie theater first, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, <laughs> getting back to this film, let me first try to give you a very super fast synopsis of what this movie's about. This movie takes place, first of all, sometime in the future, because just like Inception, you're dealing with technology that doesn't exist right now. And basically what you have is a CIA operative who is sort of recruited into his latest assignment in order to, let's say, save the world. Okay, so it's a very broad assignment. And it has to do with the ability by somebody in the future to be able to go back in time, and not just go back in time, but to reverse time. And not only reverse time, but you 
can see that time being reversed as a witness to it. And all these different forces that are helping them or not helping them, it is... <laughs> I know there is a... I could just read you like the wiki definition of what this movie is about. But think of it as that, as the backdrop of the movie. It's about time travel. It's about changing the events that are happening and all these different forces that are helping or hurting you in the process. But the whole movie is also set up a little bit like a James Bond thriller, a spy mystery thriller. Because I remember that is something that Nolan was kind of dabbling with a long time ago. There was the buzz going around that maybe he will direct a Bond film. And with Inception, if you guys remember the, the third act of Inception, the one that takes place in the snow, that's that whole sequence, that's got James Bond written all over it. And it seems as if in this movie, he was able to kind of expand on the on what a Nolan Bond film would look like, at least in terms of the characters and the settings and the, the grand scale and the chases and all that stuff. Very Bondish, if you will. But... This isn't a Bond film. This is this is a Christopher Nolan film. You know, this is him doing this expansion on the theme of time. Now, I'm a huge fan of time travel films. I fall for them all the time. I love them. They're not all great, but this film completely, absolutely baffled me. And I don't mean that in a good way. What I mean is that the initial reaction that some people had to this film and the general complaints about this film let's say hit me like a freight train number one you just don't know what's going on at least i didn't understand what was going on they explain to you what the theory is of, of what's going on and they even say in the narrative they are like but don't get too caught up on it just go with you know it's kind of like just go with it so it's like okay i i won't think about it i'm gonna go with it i'm gonna go with it but there are so many rules and there's so much exposition in the film that it's almost like trying to cram calculus in one hour. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm lucky if I can get through a semester of calculus. I don't even remember if I took calculus, to <laughs> tell you the truth. <laughs> and I remember back when I was in school, when I had a specifically difficult class, and they were usually like math is one of those uh, subjects that for me, it's like a train. You're riding this train and you're following the train. But if you derail that train, that train's not getting back on the rails again. It is going to take quite a while for you to get yourself back on track to understand what's going on. Because everything depends so much on what you just heard. And if you miss anything along the way, you're lost. Because you lost a very important part of that story. As opposed to... I don't know, something like history or even biology where you kind of move on to different subjects, different characters, and some things just don't matter as much anymore. And you can kind of move on and just pick up from this point and go forward. With math, I used to find that, that that was impossible. Once you fall off the train, you're not getting back on the train. And that's the problem I had with this movie. It was that as they're explaining to you what's happening, certain things just don't sink in. And I cannot build the rest of the story or the rest of the logic of the story with those fragments that were lost a few minutes ago. So I just kind of went with it. I just, okay, let's, ooh, action sequence. Ooh, unbelievable. I mean, cinematically incredible action sequences. 
worthy of the best Bond films, you know, that kind of stuff. But I love the time travel theme. I absolutely love that theme. And I kind of felt like, oh man, I'm watching a movie, but I'm watching myself watching a movie because I'm not really into the movie, not because I don't want to be into the movie, is because I can't get into the movie. I am. It's like somebody shut the door on me while I'm watching this movie, and it's like, it was like watching a foreign film without subtitles. I'm like, this looks fantastic. These actors are great, but I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> that's, how, that's how I felt. Now, part of the problem, <laughs> if it's not hard enough to follow this film, Part of the problem is the other thing that they mentioned earlier on in some of the complaints was that the audio mix is wonky. Nolan's been doing this thing for a while, and I know he keeps defending it because it's his preference. And I get this. Okay. Yes, you're the artist. I get it. Fine. And it started for me, at least. I remember with The Dark Knight Rises with Bane. Remember Bane and his muffled voice and nobody could understand what the hell he was saying? And I think Nolan had to kind of clean it up a little bit so people could understand his lines. Well, apparently, and I didn't understand it as much. I didn't think it was a problem as much on Interstellar or in Dunkirk. But in this movie, good Lord, the music and the sound effects were like 10. And the dialogue was like a 5. So... There were sequences where there's a lot of exposition going on, but you cannot hear it. I couldn't hear it. I could not hear it. And I've heard other people say the same thing. They just couldn't hear it. And that could be also part of the problem as to why there are certain very important elements of this film that I completely missed or couldn't understand is because I couldn't hear it. So it is just incredible (laughs) how weird it is that, that you have that going on. There are certain beats in this film that are very reminiscent of Inception. And I have a feeling there's going to be tons of Easter eggs in here and people are going to find them. And little by little, you're going to start realizing that maybe this is connected to the Inception world. Maybe not. That was one of the theories we had going on for a long time. But I was kind of able to tell certain twists, if you will, even though I wasn't following the story too well towards the end of the movie. And there were some others that I, I wasn't able to tell. I've been going to some of these review websites, some of the people I admire and I, I follow and, and so forth, and people, just even people that I have no clue who they are, where, yes, I'm getting that same kind of feedback, and I am getting some, some kind of um, better explanation of what's going on. There was one particular reviewer, and I'm going to see if I can remember to put the link to it, where he kind of broke down the movie per character and how the... You follow that character's trajectory and the twists and the spoilery, unusual events that take place and how people are connected, this and that, that really, really make it clearer as to what's happening. But the fact that I have to go and do that, I've had that complaint before. Remember with my with my Last Jedi rant that the viewer shouldn't have to go hunting for that information. You should be able to extrapolate that information As you watch the film, you shouldn't have to go out of your way. Now, this is a perfect film in terms of if you're the kind of and I am this kind of person that once you really like a film, you love to find out the fact that there's maybe another 25% worth of information out there that is there for you to find. You know, it's like bonus material, if you will. It's it's if you dig enough, you find this extra stuff that you didn't even think about while you were watching the film. 
there's I think there's a lot of that going on in this film. And I think the problem is that this film is so convoluted and audio mixed <laughs> deprived <laughs> that you might only get 25% of the film and the other 75% is out there for you to figure out on your own because you couldn't hear it or you couldn't make it out on your own. I don't think that's what he meant to do. I don't think so. I don't think that's what his purpose was. But in my particular case, that's where I am. So I can't, I can't just kind of toss this film aside and say, all right, this is my first official Christopher Nolan film that I dislike. No, I'm not going to say that yet. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I did that for The Last Jedi. And when it was all said and done, Last Jedi was a disappointment, period. I gave it, I don't know how many times I watched that film. <laughs> I remember at one point, he's like, I think I've watched this film more than any other modern Star Wars film. Just because I wanted to get another point of view and another angle and another this and another that, and it still disappointed me. But this film, I'm going to give it a little time. I'm going to give it a little more time. I'm going to try to research it a little more, which again, that goes against my own rules of, you know, if you have to do a lot of legwork, you're not dealing with, with a lot of, you know, with a good film. But since I own it, I am going to rewatch it at some point. This is definitely not the type of film that I can watch, let's say, for example, with my dad or with somebody who's not a very savvy film viewer. I would say if you don't understand Inception, you shouldn't watch this film. If Inception makes you a little uncomfortable in terms of, oh man, there's just, how am I supposed to keep track of these? Don't watch this film. Just don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. There's going to be a threshold, I think, where you don't, you just say, forget it. And I want to watch a little more of these reviews because I've heard a lot of people, like, for example, this, this one guy I've, I've heard, Stuckman, that's his name, Stuckman. He says he loves the film, but he gave it the same complaints that I was giving. And I'm trying to figure out, well, what made the film so enjoyable that you're willing to overlook these other things that normally on any other film, you would just kind of destroy that film because of those things. And granted, yes, the visuals are amazing. The style is amazing because it's it's Nolan and he's he's a top-notch director. But is there a balance between putting up with so much of this other stuff, you know, to still bring the film into the positive side? I don't know. I, I just don't understand it. So this I'm going to kind of refer to as a first viewing, a first pass at this film, because this is the type of film that I'm going to have to hit it again. Now, after watching it and after having the reaction that I had, I'm kind of glad that I didn't see it in the theater, because in order to see this movie in the theater, I would have basically have to put my life in danger <laughs> because of it, you know, while in the middle of COVID, going into a movie theater is not the smartest thing anyone can do. So I'm really glad I didn't go and see it in the theater. Plus, the other thing that might help me, and it might help you, I don't know, we'll see, is that I ordered, and I have, I think I already received it, the script for this film. So maybe by reading the script and by reading some of the narrative of the story, it will clear things up a little better. So I think that's what I'm going to do next. I'm going to read the script and then I'm going to watch it again to see if things make more sense because this is so much a movie I want to like, but I feel like, I almost feel like I'm not smart enough 
to like this film. You know what I mean? It's like with Inception and even a little bit with Interstellar, there were certain concepts that are high complex scientific concepts that he's relying on to give you the big reveal. Same thing with Inception. And in this film, it's a huge concept that he's working with. But it's almost like I just cannot wrap my mind around it in order for it to make sense. So I'm going to try the book next, and then I'm going to hit the movie again to see if there's a difference. And if there is or not, I'll let you guys know. Matu, Mirada, You must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A, a reader? A reader. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. Today we are going to talk about the Kopiashi Maru. This is the name of a ship, in a way theoretical, fictionalized, but let's keep in mind that practically everything we're talking about is fictionalized. So what's funny about this is that, you know, we are talking about a fictionalized ship within a fictionalized show. However, this particular ship and this particular scenario has shown itself many, many times within Star Trek and not only in its films, but it's in its expanded universe books, video games, you know, it, it's kind of popped up here and there every now and then. But the main two places that we might have seen it is first off, the place where it started is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. You guys probably remember the beginning of the film where they're running what we at the time don't understand is a simulation. A Savik is commanding a starship and all of a sudden she gets a... Uh, a distress call from the Kobayashi Maru somewhere inside the neutral zone, the Klingon neutral zone. And she risks going inside the zone in order to rescue the passengers of the Kobayashi Maru. Something has happened, something has damaged the ship, and there's a lot of interference, and they can't really communicate that well. And just as they're about to get there and start an evacuation, Klingon ships show up and pretty much ambush Savik's ship and destroy it. What's really uh, interesting in the beginning of that film is that the fact that her crew comprises of many well-known Star Trek individuals uh, that seem to kind of die left and right, you know, within the simulation that's taking place, including Spock and you know, a lot of other people, and she's the last one left, and the ship is exploding, and then, boom, everything stops. Kirk comes out and starts to, you know, kind of evaluate her performance and so forth. We later understand in the film, because they talk about it later on once again, that this is a standard way of, of running the simulation, you know, for cadets that are interested in command responsibilities that this is a, a scenario it's a very difficult scenario that the only person that's ever beaten the scenario has ever come out alive of this scenario is james t kirk and that the reason that he survived was because he technically cheated he reprogrammed the scenario so that it would work out in his favor 
And rather than to get thrown out of Starfleet, he was commended for, I forget, imaginative thinking or something in terms of how he was able to do that. And and especially to Savick, when uh, she's talking to uh, Spock, you know, they talk about how she finds it really unusual that they would allow him to do that sort of thing and get away with it. But anyway, the next time we see this take place is in the J.J. Abrams film, Star Trek, which is the reboot he did. And obviously, different cast. You guys remember that one. And they go through this again where Kirk, a different Kirk, the alternate Kirk, if you will, kind of flies by. You see him, you actually see him take the 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 test uh, this time around. And he just very full of himself flies through the test and he's like yeah shoot open phasers do this do that and they're they're blowing up all the klingon ships and everything and at the end of the trial spock who is the person administering the scenario he's shocked and that's the beginning of how these two more or less get to know each other very adversarial relationship from the beginning now the ship itself, we never really see it when we watch Star Trek II. In Star Trek II, it's just a blip on a screen, you know, a, a computer screen. However, in the Abrams Star Trek, we actually get a very quick shot of the ship itself. And this particular ship is the one that I now have as part of the Eagle Moss collection. Eagle Moss has done a rendering of this ship. And again, it's it's very uh, unusual, the fact that this is a ship that never really made it to be shown as a real ship. Even in Star Trek II, like I said, it was just a blip. But now at least it becomes an actual ship. But up until this point, I hadn't really seen any other interpretation of the Kobayashi Maru. However, what's really notable is the fact that the subject of the Kobayashi Maru had been portrayed at least on two other occasions through books. And also, if you look at the overall, you know, summary of all the different places that Star Trek manages to tap into this subject of the Kobayashi Maru, there's tons of books that kind of dip into it a little bit. There's even the video games, a couple of video games, I think, that actually let you take the Kobayashi Maru. So they kind of expand on the mythology of, of, of this particular event. But there is a Star Trek Enterprise book, meaning, again, this is EU kind of material based on the Enterprise show. And this one came out a year before, uh, but I wasn't aware of it, uh, than, than the, uh, the film, uh, where they do credit an actual Kobayashi Maru ship, some kind of a supply ship or something. It's delivering some sort of supplies, a secret cargo or something of experimental equipment uh, near a soon-to-be-established neutral zone where all of a sudden it's hit by a graphic mine in the Gamma Hydra sector and is uh, kind of stranded out there. And when the Enterprise gets there uh, and tries to rescue, you know, the ship, they are surrounded by Romulans. So 
a battle ensues, resulting in the Enterprise having to leave the area and abandoning the Kobayashi Maru. And that is what historically creates that maneuver, a completely no-win scenario, if you will, the thing Kirk talks about, that would be used in the future to train future captains. But they do credit the Enterprise and Jonathan Archer as the captain that actually faced that decision. And it's a very specific set of action that he takes that later on on another book that I read called The Kobayashi Maru, this book came out way, way earlier than this. This came out, I think, in 89 or something like that, when I think Next Gen was still around, that is about how you have Kirk, Scotty, Chekhov, and Sulu stranded on a shuttle. And to pass the time, you know, to get out of their dilemma, one of the things they do is they talk about how each of them dealt with the Kobayashi Maru, where everybody kind of gets to tell their story. I mean, a lot of other things happen, but specifically you go through the Kirk version of what happened, which is not very detailed other than the fact that we know that he basically reprogrammed the test similar to what would eventually happen in the uh, Abrams version uh, of the, the telling of that story. But then we also get Chekhov telling his side of the story of how he dealt with the test, which basically resulted in him being overtaken by the Klingons. Again, in this scenario, we're dealing more with Klingons and how he chooses to destroy his ship rather than to be captured. So he kind of basically kills his own crew, more or less, in order to not be captured by the Klingons. He does claim that he's able to eject all the... You know, again, when they're kind of going over what happened in terms of the simulation, he says, well, uh, technically I also ejected my my escape pods. And they, they tell him, well, don't worry about it because the explosions would have been so huge that your escape pods would have been destroyed or the radiation would have killed everyone. So that was how he dealt with that particular scenario. And then you have Sulu and his particular way of dealing with it that involved not crossing into the neutral territory and not rescuing the ship because that was more important than violating this agreement that they have. Uh, so he dealt with it in a different manner. And then you have Scotty who picks a, a really different way of dealing with it. And that is he chooses to do certain things to engage the Klingons because of the fact that his ship is damaged, he's able to transport certain volatile materials causing different waves of Klingon ships to explode simultaneously. And he does it like one, two, three, or four, or five times in a row, I forget. To the point where they're evaluating the results and he has a very how shall we say, productive way of almost sort of beating the simulation. But the problem is that he's using a technique that only an engineer would know about that the game thinks makes him win, but in reality, it wouldn't work in a real-life scenario. Because he's dealing with a recreation, his logic is that, well, I'm going to use that recreation's parameters to win at this without it being necessarily a functional way of doing it in real life because he admits 
yes, this is something that gets me what I want, you know, gets me to defeat the enemy, but I also know that in reality, it wouldn't work. So that results in him being kind of removed from the command uh, <laughs> uh, ladder of, of being in that particular program and being sent over to more of an engineering kind of thing, which is the thing that he wanted to do in the first place. So they kind of use it as an excuse. But what's interesting here is that you have so many different ways of dealing with this scenario. And the different writers obviously try not to duplicate themselves with, well, this guy did it this way, and so did this guy. So they give you all these different reactions that people have, depending on their personalities, depending on their background, you know. So the ways that this scenario could go, you get a lots, you know, lots of different examples. Now, the Eagle Moss version that I have is really cool. I mean, it is really, really cool. The way that this ship was designed is for the 2009 Star Trek film. But before that, there were at least some designs out there for people to kind of start working on what it would look like. Like I said earlier, for Star Trek II, they didn't have it. It wasn't there. That whole sequence was initially written and then removed and then kind of put back into the film because they weren't sure if they wanted it. But then it kind of made sense to keep it in, in, you know, during like, I think, I don't know if it was the second rewrite or the third rewrite, they kind of brought it back in to be able to start the film. And they also used it, I don't want to say as an excuse, but as a, as a way of tricking the audience a little bit. Because if you remember, Star Trek II is the one where Spock dies and they were very afraid that the surprise, you know, that the movie might have get spoiled ahead of time if people knew that. So there was already some kind of a buzz, I think, of the possibility that Spock might die in this film. So what they figure is by keeping this sequence in the beginning, where you do see Spock dying right off the bat, you know, while participating in the Kobayashi Maru, the audience would think to themselves, oh, okay, that's what those rumors were about, that Spock was going to die, and boom, there it is, he's dead, and no, he's not dead. Okay, they tricked us, got it. Okay, good, everything is safe, he's not going to die. Little do they know what happens later. So, for one way or the other, they decided to keep it. I'm glad they did, because it's a great sequence, it's a great way to starting, you know, to start the whole movie. But, like I said earlier, they did not make a model for you to look at of what this ship looks like. I believe it was all about the budget. They didn't have the budget. They didn't have the time to create an entire, you know, full-blown outer space special effects sequence other than the ones they were saving for later. So they couldn't construct another ship and blah, blah, blah. So fine. There was no way around it, you know, to be able to do that. So the next way of doing it or the next way of having some kind of reference material came from the novel that I mentioned called The Kobayashi Maru, the one from 89, written by Julia Eklar. On the cover, you have a ship that resembles, hard to say, it's not exactly a circular saucer, it's a little more geometric, and it has three nacelles. And from what I understand, that design came from Rick Sternback, a name that I think I might have mentioned before having to do with one of the major, you know, concept designers for Star Trek, for one of the earlier Star Trek chronology spaceflight books, 
According to this, it was 1979 when this book came out, where he had designed a Tritium-class starship. So at the time, this wasn't the Kobayashi Maru. This was just a different shaped Starfleet vessel that they had designed, but they adapted that look for the cover of that book. So that's the first thing we have to look at. So the first actual time that you do get the chance to create something is for the 2009 Star Trek film. All they have to go on is this book cover. But at the time, John Eaves takes a crack at it of what would this ship look like. So he comes up with two designs. The first design looks a little bit like the Reliant, you know, with the nacelles underneath the ship in the back, as opposed to the traditional Enterprise with the nacelles high up in the back. So what you have is the Reliant-looking ship without a spoiler, and then in between the two nacelles, underneath the ship, it is hauling two huge cargo containers. Then he came out with a secondary version of this one, which is, once again, a Reliant-y looking ship, no spoiler, but put the engines on top, not on the bottom. So you got two engines on the top, and then on the bottom now put the two cargo containers, giving the ship more of a quad, you know, kind of look, where you have four distinct things coming out of the back. And that is what they kind of ran with. They took that design. Again, remember, this is all computer-generated stuff. They didn't really make, you know, the type of models they would have made in the 80s to be shot and destroyed and (laughs) all sorts of things. This is all computer-generated stuff. And they kept that design. That's the one they went with. Now, granted, in the film, (laughs) even though this thing was created, it barely gets seen. You barely see it. You see it for maybe one quick shot as it's flying around computer simulation of course but you actually do see some sort of a design taking place but with these eagle moss reproductions they are just fantastic how beautiful they look and 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 you get such a better idea of what you're dealing with this particular eagle moss version that i got is the slightly larger one because if you remember i with eagle moss you have your kind of like small And then kind of like medium, and then sometimes kind of like large ships. There seems to be two or three sizes, depending on how crazy they go with the sizing of these things. But this one, I would say it's about maybe nine inches long. And it is just a gorgeous reproduction of what they had in mind for the film. It's even weathered looking a little bit. It looks a little beat up, like it's seen better days. It says uh, USS Kobayashi Maru. ECS 1022 on the hull. It's got all the traditional Starfleet, you know, insignias. It is a gray colored ship, not the Enterprise gray, a much darker gray. It is very flat and slick. And as they mention on the little magazine they give you with the ship, this particular design of at least the head or at least the saucer section is something that they were able to utilize for other ships in the movie to kind of modify them a little bit obviously take off the container pods underneath and then kind of play a little bit with that shape what's really cool about it is that it's got its deflector dish that blue deflector dish that we see in all of these traditional ships it has a dead square as part of the saucer itself right in the center which is a really really cool alternative way of designing these ships this particular 
version from Eagle Moss is designed as a special edition. It's not necessarily your standard, like I said before, and, and it's not necessarily the extra large size ships because they do sometimes go back and forth, different versions of the same ship. But it is a, a gorgeous edition, and it fits so perfectly with my particular conditions of collecting Star Trek ships. I try to go for, just like I do with many other things, I like to go with the different ones, whether it's the concept ones or the alternative versions or, you know, that kind of stuff. There's always some kind of theme that I, I usually like to go with. But this one is just a beautiful looking ship. And I really wish they would go a little deeper into it in terms of them being able to talk about or use this on some future, in a future manner, such as, I don't know, Discovery or Picard. You know, any of those shows could have an episode that deals with this specific realistic portrayal of how the simulation originated from. That particular Enterprise book would be a really good way of them being able to show you that whole sequence or that whole mythology of how this ship became the standard you know, simulation for Starfleet command candidates. The only problem is that because it's so closely tied to Archer's Enterprise, it would be nearly impossible to get that crew back to do it. But who knows? I mean, they could figure a way around it. They could rewrite history, if you will. The books are not canon. You know, they. they I mean, they, most books try to use... Or work within the you know the sandbox of the rules of, the, of what of what is canon, but for a show like Picard or Discovery, yeah, they could do it. I think they could do it. They could just you know assign the uh, the history of that ship to a different captain or a different ship. It doesn't always have to be the Enterprise. You know, that's one of the things that people complain about is that why is it always Kirk and it's always the Enterprise that's you know involved in these events? Well, there you go. Make it somebody else. But I, what I would say is definitely use this design. This design is great. I love it. The only catch is that this design is for J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, the Kelvin timeline, if you guys remember. That is a timeline that could be considered an alternate timeline. So it is possible that in an alternate timeline, a ship might look different than it would on the traditional original timeline, you know, of Kirk. So... That's something to think about. But going back, as far as the Eagle Moss is concerned, they did an excellent job. I strongly recommend this particular ship. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We started off with Tenet. And as I mentioned before, I am not giving up on this movie. <laughs> I am going to try to blame myself for not understanding it. I'm going to do a little more research on it. Like I said, I'm going to read the script that I have and hopefully on a second viewing, it will make a little more sense. And then we touched upon the Kobayashi Maru, uh, all the different instances where this particular ship appeared in Star Trek lore. Granted, there's way more than we can really talk about when you, if you go digging really, really deep. 
but the main places where this would happen and as I mentioned earlier I hope that they do one more at least visit to the infamous ship now that we have a couple of more Star Trek properties out there that could explore it a little deeper so on behalf of everyone here thanks for listening and we'll see you soon here at Geekfest Rants bye bye everybody Beyond the darkness, beyond the human evolution, is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant. Exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy. Left for dead, he has survived. I'll chase him round the moon of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. There she is. There she is. Collapsing, Captain. Can you evade the power? A few shots, sir. Not enough against their shields. Evade the starboard. Scotty, I need warp speed in three minutes or we're all dead. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me. Marooned for all eternity. Buried alive. Buried alive. Sean! Sean! At the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. Star Trek II. The Wrath of Khan. Opens at a theater near you, June 4th. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geek Fest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2020. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>